to Scrooge by the Ghost, the podcast where we haunt the 1988 holiday classic Scrooged, one horrifying specter at a time. I'm your host, Sean German, and joining us tonight are special guests, the uh, official Movies by Minutes chaplain, Father David, and from the Bat Minute podcast, it's Niall McGowan. Hello. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, Sean. Hey. Oh, I already said hello. I, I jumped the gun already. Oh, damn it. Haunted by hellos. Oh, <laughs> yes. Hello. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome to, to both of you for uh, for an, a very exciting uh, span of, of this movie. Very exciting evening. We're getting we're getting towards the end. This is sort of the um, the, the, the peak of the action, I suppose. Mm. Um, well, but be, before we get into it, I just want to... Uh, uh, note for the list, a programming note, uh, Pete Mummert will not be appearing on tonight's show, but we do have that special holiday message that Pete sent in. Uh, we'll be playing that for you a little bit later in the episode. Uh, but first, we will begin with a summary of this section of the film. And uh, what we'll be covering today is uh, Frank Cross appears once again on the set of Scrooged, having returned from his time with the Ghost of Christmas Present. Uh, final preparations for the live presentation of Scrooge are being made while Frank uh, repairs to his uh, office alone, and we see him opening a present from his brother James. Uh, following that, Frank is confronted by former employee Elliot Loudermilk, who is trying to kill him, but before Loudermilk can pull the trigger, Frank is whisked away by the final spirit, the ghost of Christmas future. Um, and this final messenger of good, chiding- good tidings and cheer shows Frank three visions of a possible future. So we'll, we'll start today as we've, we've been doing every day with uh, what is your, you know, what is your history of this movie? What is your, your, your familiarity? Do you like it? You not like it? What's going on? Um, well, start with Niall. Niall, what do you think of the, the Scrooged program? Oh, well, look, I, I really do. Uh, again, I feel I always have to justify myself after I appeared on National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation Days, pretending to think the film was okay, and then later on be like, no, it was, that was terrible, I hated it. So, But no, I genuinely do like this film as well. Okay. I mean, this, you, you can be honest, you're, this is a... I won't go so far as to say it's a safe space, but you can be you can be honest with us. No, no, but uh, this this was uh, one I did see quite a bit as a kid. Uh, again, just around Christmas time, particularly way back when, when uh, in Ireland you had basically like seven TV stations, and they would just play the same movies over and over and over again, like a pre-satellite, pre-cable mm-hmm. kind of. Well, I mean, cable existed, just I just didn't have it. So. Um, I did have a, a, a around Christmas time. You'd see this probably about like three or four times because it was just on rotation, <laughs> uh, and it kind of went into. Like I didn't see it for a while, and now most years it still is on all the time. But like most Christmas films that are frequently on air, like I don't get the peace to watch it unless I make the time. Like it's <laughs> Christmas is a weird period where like I literally like every year it's almost become tradition for me to to attempt to watch Jingle All the Way and for it to be <laughs> inevitably interrupted with something. Wait, the, the tradition is to start watching it and get interrupted? That That's yeah. the, the holiday that, that is spirit without, for you? Without fail, that will happen every year. <laughs> and the last time I, I uh, before actually sitting down properly, you know, locked door, phone off to watch this for this recording, like the last time I attempted to, to watch Scrooge was on like a Christmas day when it was on like in the middle of the afternoon. 
And I was just, I was actually helping to cook the Christmas dinner and like maybe saw about like 20 minutes of the film in total because there was so much <laughs> other stuff happening. And it's, it's one of those things, like a lot of Christmas movies, even ones that I like really, really love, like Muppets Christmas Carol and stuff, I will always make time mm, for that. Uh, but even like Die Hard and stuff, I, it's always, you try to sit down and watch it, but there will always be people coming into the house to say hello. Mm-hmm. They'll always be, oh, you're getting called up for dinner somewhere. You have to meet up with friends and that. It's always very, very difficult Curse all those people wanting to spend time with you during the holidays. <laughs> no. They know you're trying to watch a movie. It's pains in my ass, Father Dave. I, 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 can't, I can't stand these people. Just let, let me, Arnie and Sinbad, just have an hour and a half to ourselves, for God's sake. You're my special friends. I only see once a year. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to watch this movie about the importance of spending time with family and friends. <laughs> But I can't do it if my family and friends won't can leave you, me alone. Can you please leave me alone? <laughs> but there was, a, there was a time, actually, a couple of years back, I was like, I'm going to watch Gremlins. I'm going to make sure I friggin' get seeing Gremlins, at least, uninterrupted. This like, And it was about 1 a.m. when I put it on. And my dad just landed down out of nowhere. I was like, what is it with this time of year? <laughs> he literally got like, oh, I just couldn't sleep, so I thought I'd wander down. I was like, dude, I'm trying to watch Gremlins, for God's sake. <laughs> Oh, oh well. <laughs> oh well. All right. Um, and so, so Father David, your opinion of uh, of this interpretation of a Christmas classic? You know, the world is full of movies. There are lots of films <laughs> that are getting made every year. It's just it's so hard to to keep up with all of them. I'm just I'm just really glad that Bill Murray got a new project that uh, I never heard of before, and you know, it came out so recently. Oh wait, mm-hmm. it was 1988? Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah! I never heard of this movie before. I <laughs> up until uh, Christopher Dennis sent me a message inviting me on the show. I I had no idea that Bill Murray was involved in an adaptation of the Dickens classic. So uh, it was a real delight for me to sit down. I enjoy Bill Murray quite a bit. Uh, get into that later in the episode. And I had an interesting experience with this movie. It it is. Very sweet and and very heartfelt at at moments, and then is also so mean spirited in other parts. <laughs> it it it's, <laughs> you have these characters that just get kicked over and over again in the stomach by the comedy, and then you have these really endearing moments of family togetherness and this really heartfelt message at the end, seemingly that maybe goes on a little too long. Maybe. But the uh, the interpretation of the the story here and you know the comedy aspect played with all the ghosts and spirits, I really enjoyed. I just felt a little taken aback sometimes by uh, the <laughs> by the cruelty of the jokes. I mean, this like this this poor censor right at the beginning of this minute. She just has the worst possible forty eight hours. Just getting whammed over and over again. The thing is, though, like that is such a bizarre running joke for this movie. It's like, yeah, this poor woman keeps getting like horrifically injured over and over again. But then at the end of the movie, she essentially assaults John Glover. So it's kind of like, I guess she had it coming in advance or something. It's just, it's just it is very, very strange. But. That actually is the thing. Like, at the end of this movie, like, during the big sing-along and stuff, it actually is very genuinely heartwarming. I was like, oh, for a movie so deeply ingrained in bitterness and cynicism, 
it actually does have a very nice like core <laughs> when you get through all the sourness to the center of it. Yeah, so a, a, a question I have uh, mainly for Niall, but but Father David, please chime in as well, is um, I'm a little maybe surprised is, is too strong a term, but I'll say su- surprised that you like this film because I know you've you've expressed your fondness for The Muppets Christmas Carol. And, and one of the things, if I remember correctly, one of the things you said about that film is it, it is one of the more faithful mm. adaptations of yeah. the original. Uh, though, though you didn't say explicitly that's why you like it, but I that's the way I heard it. Uh, whereas, uh, if it's not obvious, if it wasn't obvious in the beginning, and for the listeners that have been following along with us, it is now obvious that this is one of the less faithful adaptations <laughs> of the original tale. It's, it's very different. The uh, you know the, the scenes with Frank Cross in between, where he's interacting with actual people in the real world, in between the visitations from. Um, from the spirits. And, and one thing we haven't ad- addressed before is the difference between Elliot Loudermilk and Bob Cratchit. And, yeah. and this is a little bit different because we've got Grace, the assistant, which is part of the, the Cratchit character from the original. But Elliot Loudermilk is um, also fits in because, um, in, at least in, in some versions of the tale, uh, Scrooge fires Cratchit. Uh, just before Christmas, the way uh, the way Elliot Loudermilk is fired, but uh, and I'm thinking most recently I saw the uh, I was recently watching the 1938 version of A Christmas Carol with um, actually uh, with with Gene Lockhart uh, appears as Bob Cratchit and then his real life wife Kathleen Lockhart appears hmm. as uh, as his wife, but in that um, it's they they go overboard to show how jolly. Bob Cratchit is. So so Bob Cratchit gets fired by Scrooge the day before Christmas. And then he runs off whistling and they show this shopping spree. He buys this goose. He, he goes and he buys all this food for the Christmas feast with a smile on his face and a, and a whistle on his lips after just being fired. Whereas in, you know, in this film, Elliot Loudermilk is... Um, is not happy and is not whistling. He is not buying a goose with the money he gets. Yeah, no, he is. He's trying to get drunk. Well, maybe and a gray goose. Yeah, yeah, gray <laughs> goose. Exactly. Um, oh, so uh, so <laughs> long question, longer basically. So um, you know, so Niall, what do you think about the diversions? Kind of the the changes from the original that this film takes. Oh, the guy don't mind that element at all because. The thing is, like, I've seen about 15 billion versions of A Christmas Carol, as most people have, because for whatever reason, it's just that story that just gets retold with, like, hey, we can do this with friggin' mm-hmm. Urkel, or we can do it with, like, whatever <laughs> characters, like, Christmas special, Christmas Carol. There you go. Go ahead and do it. The fact that it's, it's actually kind of bizarre, the fact that, like, they still do it, because it would almost seem that Scrooge is the, the peak of them addressing the fact that, like, this story's been done, like, a billion times before already. And, like, look, we we know everyone knows the story. We know all the tropes, but we're kind of still doing it. But still, after this, you'll still get, like, you know, a Christmas Caroline starring Tori Spelling, where it's, like, she's a female executive in a company who doesn't like Christmas and things like that. Um, it speaks to the enduring power of Dickens' story, though. There is something that almost 
cries out for that adaptation into different circumstances. Yeah, this movie in particular is is a very meta postmodern take on the Christmas Carol story with the the play within a play going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, the par- if as if you, you couldn't miss the parallels between Frank Cross's story and Ebenezer Scrooge's story it is woven <laughs> into the very text of the movie. But there's still something so enduringly universal about the message of Dickens' tale that you want to see it put into all these different adaptations, these different circumstances, because of the message of human kindness, the message of living your life for others, because your life is not about you, and you find ultimate happiness and fulfillment by giving yourself away. Mm. That's a message for all times and places. I think I do have like it might just be in my nature as a very contentious person or something, <laughs> but like I always kind of hold the story now as being like, yeah, but they're essentially just terrorizing a guy into being nice. Like, particularly the Ghost of Christmas Future, where it's just pretty much, and particularly in this version, where they're freaking throwing him in the coffin and it's on fire and stuff. It's got a real kind of thing of like, well, he's not. It, it's. If it had been the first two ghosts alone, maybe he would have seen like, well, I can muse over my my mistakes and whatnot. And even like you actually see in the TV version within this movie, the the Buddy Hatchet version of Scrooge is just like, well, I've learned my lesson. And then the other guy's just like, no, you've got one more ghost to go. <laughs> it's like, no, the last one is there just to be like. Just be nice. <laughs> and essentially, it's just going to get you pumped up. No wonder the next day he's just all like, oh, what a wondrous day. I'm alive and stuff. Yeah. And then you know, a couple of days later, he'll be like, it's kind of worn off a little bit. Now, I don't know if I'm all that into it anymore because that was just really scary for a bit. But the adrenaline's just going to come out of me. And it's basically like, yeah, you were just bullying me into being a nice person through this threat of like, if you don't do it, this is going to happen and stuff. But uh, so yeah, that, that's always my only slight problem with the story in itself. But also, like I guess it's like, well, you know, you could look at it that way, or you could be, well, they are genuinely showing him his future, and it's like, well, this is what's going to happen to you. So yeah, it's yeah. the consequences of of both Scrooge and Cross's actions that are shown to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I took it as a little bit necessary because he is even after the initial ver- visit. Um, and I, I don't recall if where Frank Cross is, but I know Scrooge, after Marley shows up, he's like, oh, we're, we're good. Like, okay, I've been warned. Let Just let me be. Like, do we really need the three ghosts? So, like, right from the beginning, he's looking to, to shortcut it. Mm-hmm. Um, although that's a little bit more believable because – well, maybe believable isn't right, but – because Marley shows up and he's he, he's weighted down by chains. In, in this case, Frank's former boss shows up like he just came off the, the golf course. He's like pulling a <laughs> he's, he, I think he's actually got a, a bag with him, like his golf bag. He's dressed in yeah. golf gear. You know, he, he makes it I mean, he, he talks a good game. He makes it sound like, oh, he's doomed because of, of the way he lived his life. But he, he looks like he's just getting off of, uh, you know, from vacation. Yeah. He just got off of holiday. He looks great. <laughs> uh, so that's not For a dead guy, he looks amazing. Yeah, exactly. The whole change um, element, though, has been completely ruined for me by the the TV version that had uh, Kelsey Grammer as Scrooge and Jason Alexander as Jacob Marley. And he had a whole musical number 
But it was because it, it's George Costanza singing, basically. Right. And it, the whole thing is just like, you know, uh, I remember like the, the one of the lines that was just like, Link by terrifying Link. And it's so cheap and it's so crummy and it's so like basically lame that you're like, oh, how, how have I not seen this? Is like a, a, a Frasier Christmas Carol. Oh, the, the thing is, though, Kelsey Grammer, of course, is great in it, but he is hamming it up as well. Like, he's proper stooped over and the face is all crunched up and stuff. And um, Oh, the, 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 there's an opening number of him. Oh, I, I couldn't even try to even sing any of it, but it's like a really overly wordy kind of delivery he has to give. And it's just <laughs> the fact that Kelsey Grammer's like, no one else but him could do this version of Scrooge. He's so perfectly cast in it. But, uh, yeah. Well, so let, let's actually talk about... <laughs> Let's let's kind of get into uh, some of the specifics of this movie, though. There's certainly a lot that we've we've already alluded to. Um, so Frank literally crashes onto the set and he knocks over a barrel that runs over our our poor suffering uh, censorship lady. Um, and you know Bryce comes in. He's like, "Who's disrupting the set?" At first, he thinks it's a kid. Uh, Frank is hiding behind a couple uh, shorter actors. I love the I love the use of of those actors for the force perspective on mm-hmm. the set. It, it strikes me as part of the satire of the excesses of the entertainment industry. What did um, what did Ryan Lander say? They spent forty million dollars on yeah. this TV special, <laughs> and so with that kind of money, sure you can you can have little people in the background to force the perception of this London town street. <laughs> It's kind of help imagine like Peter Jackson taking notes of like, oh, well, that's how you could do all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Before the scene started, though, because I know I was a little gutted. Like, oh, we just missed out on some Carol Kane because I love Carol Kane so much. But uh, I just couldn't help but feel that like Sean, as a person who did Groundhog Day minutes, you must be sick of seeing Bill Murray trying to revive like Frozen dead <laughs> tramps basically because the whole scene I was, all i can imagine was him like pumping his chest going breathe pops breathe come on pops come on pops i was like oh, bill murray himself was like, i've done this a lot like i keep trying to yeah. save homeless people who just right, died yeah. during the winter for some reason all, all we need yeah all we need is a, a scene with you know frank and, and herm in a diner somewhere and he's like serving up bowls of soup with a <laughs> slice of cantaloupe on the side <laughs> Yeah, this this kind of portends. This is yeah. I think there's a, there are a lot of the similar themes, you know, between this film and and I know we talked when we were talking about Groundhog Day. We did talk about Scrooge a little bit, but we didn't go. I don't know if we made the the drew, drew the lines all the way to a Christmas Carol, but uh, like like you were saying, Father David, the themes of service to others mm-hmm. and your relationships with other people. That's certainly something that's very strong in the story yeah. of of Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. Um, a curmudgeon forced by metaphysical means to learn his lesson. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Where have I heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> That's like someone come in and just pitch that at, at a music at a movie studio, and they're like, "That's a great. We got to move out of that. Wait, we can get two movies out of that. Idea. <laughs> we get two movies. Can we get the same curmudgeon? Yes, of course we can." Yeah. They just uh, maybe it was it was all CGI. They just had enough leftover footage when they were done with this uh that they're just you know what we'll just we'll edit it we'll edit around bill murray and make a whole new movie <laughs> and just you know film a couple new scenes and uh you know bring in andy mcdowell instead of uh well, instead the, of marion and uh there you go well that's that's the thing i do i do have to ask maybe you've addressed this in previous episodes sean but probably not <laughs> uh do you buy 
Bill Murray as a successful TV executive. Because to me, Bill Murray is forever like, you know, Peter Venkman, who was a guy who sort of like blagged his way, who kind of bullshitted his way into the position he's in. Because, you know, Peter Venkman as a character is inherently quite lazy and you're constantly, you're told he never studied and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And we do see, like, Frank Cross is like, oh, no, he's supposed to be a hard worker and stuff. But because it's Bill Murray and he just has that Bill Murray-ness about him, I never quite could make, I I always got the vibes more like, we just want Bill Murray in this part. But I never bought him as, like, this is a guy who could have made it to this position because he doesn't seem... Like, like he doesn't ooze that kind of like hard work ethic. He just seems like he's just an asshole, and he would have just been. Maybe he could be in charge of something, but he wouldn't be like the top tier, genius level TV executive that he's supposed to be. And for some reason, it never quite gelled with me. But hmm. uh, no, that's not. I don't know if we well we talked about it a little bit, but that's not been one of the issues because I think they do address that in the the scenes with the ghost of Christmas past, and they show him choosing. Uh, choosing work and choosing to to network or have have dinner with the boss rather than have uh, dinner with Claire and, and their friends. So I think mm. they've shown a little bit of that. Now I don't know. Yeah, I th- it seems like Cross is he's not so much the hardworking at all costs like Scrooge in the classic Carol story, but rather the networking, ambitious social climber. I want to advance up the company ladder type. Yeah, where right. he's he's going to choose the networking. Uh, possibilities over his personal relationships so sort of a, a more of a yuppie than a uh, nose of the grindstone kind of guy mm. thing is as i was watching it and it may be an inherent bias that i would have because of the podcast that i do but i was the whole time i was like i would much rather have seen like michael keaton in this part <laughs> i can imagine him doing well, like everyone yeah <laughs> but it's just i really imagine like oh this could have been a great michael Pe- keaton role of him because you've already seen him like in mr mom and stuff like that doing like stressed out guy and stuff but just, i can imagine him as more of a like this is like i can imagine michael keaton as a, as a tv executive bill murray just seems like a guy who would have been like he and again i know that they do show you scenes of him like yeah working his way up the ladder but I always got more of the vibe of like he seems like he would have just been the son of the TV executive or something <laughs> that was given the reins at some point in his life or whatever. Just more because a chip again, than a max. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, would, I I I can see Keaton doing the executive portion, but I would much rather have Bill Murray's deadpan in reaction to all of the ghost shenanigans that go on. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I don't know. Do you know Sean from like uh, pre-production stuff? Was it was it always intended for Bill Murray? Because it almost seems like again with a lot of Bill Murray roles, it's like oh, they were writing it for him because they knew they wanted Bill Murray. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's essentially this was written for a Bill Murray. I'm not sure exactly what what point of the process he came on board, but. The, the tale is that, one, the script went through drastic rewrite, that basically once he became involved with the project, he basically rewrote the whole thing. Mm. Um, and they, they changed, like, the, the, the scenes in between the spirits, and particularly the, the, the sort of romantic storyline between Claire and Frank, that that was, was beefed up, and that um, essentially what we see was written with Bill Murray in mind, and then he was... Um, 
just crazy with the ad libs that basically most of this is just a lot of what Bill Murray says is just Bill Murray, Mm. um, even going off of his own script, basically, (laughs) you know, he had them rewrite the script just for him. And then he just went crazy with ad libs. And so much of what we see in the final movie is just, uh, you know, Bill Murray riffing on the character and the situation. Mm. So yeah, it basically is, you know, done for Bill Murray, but I am intrigued by the, the, the Michael Keaton as, as Scrooge. I kind of want to see that now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I he's, he's still around. Like by all means, they could, <laughs> they do make about 15 versions of a Christmas Carol a year. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, this is, it's an easy go-to going back to a couple things that, that you've said previously, Niles, that one, it's, it's a story that is very easy to, to update and you just take rather than, uh, you know, an old timey bookkeeper, you make it a TV executive or a, a businesswoman or, or whatever. But I mean, also, it, it's something you can do. You can be, oh, oh, I'm decorating the tree or I'm wrapping the presents and this is on in the background. And if I look up within seconds, I'll recognize where we are in the story. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if I get distracted, I can still follow along. Kind well, of I, that's an interesting aspect of a holiday movie that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah, that no, even if you're just tuning in on Christmas Day, oh, yeah, so they've had the two ghosts and now there's the third ghost. There's a sort of coziness to the story itself that makes it easy just to drop in and drop out. Yeah, so so like Game of Thrones is is a horrible holiday movie. You, know, you, you get up to get <laughs> some so eggnog. For so many reasons. Yeah, well, yeah, for many reasons. But, you know, you get up for some eggnog, and when you come back to the set, you're like, wait, who is this? Where are we? Oh, wait, that person's dead? What happened? You know, you can't, you have to, pay, you have to be like paying attention and taking notes, whereas, uh, you know, with A Christmas Carol at this point, it's 100, 100, and well, I guess 100 and... 70 years old at this point. You know, you know the story. You don't have to worry about oh. kind of missing anything. <laughs> I do always like the idea, though, that there is there are young kids out there who every year are watching their first version of A Christmas Carol where they don't mm-hmm. know how this is going to work out. Like, they've never seen the, <laughs> the concept before of, like, oh, this guy's getting, like, visited by three ghosts. I wonder what the, what the third one's going to be and stuff like that. Whereas the, to us, is obviously like, well, yeah, it's almost like physically embedded in your DNA to know every aspect of the story and stuff. <laughs> but yeah, for everyone, it has to be a first time. So Yeah, that's that's true. Probably, you know, every year, maybe thousands, tens of thousands of people are are encountering this tale for the first time. Maybe Maybe this is, you know, as they're listening along to the podcast, as they watch Scrooge is their first, uh, their, <laughs> the thing is, their first experience with this story. And they're, they're very confused people. Well, there's going to be people out there who, like, for, like, a, a Christmas Caroline starring Tori Spelling was their first inkling of the story. Like, oh, that's really sucked. It's like, no, the story's good. You just happen to see an awful version of it. Yeah. Here, watch this version with Muppets. It's much better. <laughs> it is. It is much better. It, well, it is. With, it's with it's a really, really great version of the story. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so as 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 Bryce is leading Frank back to the elevator to send him up to the office, the doors open and it's it's a ghastly figure. It's a it's a skull with flaming red eyes <gasps> and a black robe. And and Frank is you know as as Scrooge himself is at this point, sort of accepting his fate. Mm-hmm. You no, know, uh, he says uh, he's here for me. You think I'm afraid of you? I know what you came for. <laughs> and, and just the the reaction from Grace. He's just he's he's in the show, Mister Cross. <laughs> what, what you because well, we know 
you know, this is a little dramatic irony here because, you know, we know what Frank's been through, but no one else does. They just see this man having some kind of breakdown and they don't know why. And she has to explain to him, no, this is just he's an actor in the show. You boob. <laughs> yeah, they do a great job playing with the ongoing joke of Frank seeing things that no one else does. <laughs> Everyone reacts more to Frank than the guy in the elevator, and they play with that just for a little bit. Like, oh, maybe this is the ghost of Christmas future because no one's reacting to the guy in the the getup. Mm. Yeah, that's a, it's weird though because they kind of they do flat out show you what the ghost of Christmas future is going to look like in this movie, but as a joke, like the because that is essentially. They do a much better version of them, like as it goes mm. on. <laughs> oh yeah, but like it's that is essentially like when we are introduced to them, it's just like a slightly higher budget version of the same outfit. But it's basically what you're going to get. And the thing is, the the outfit does look very kind of cartoony. Is its only downfall really the, the fact that the, the face just looks like it was like a like a Gary Larson Far Side cartoon skull <laughs> popped yeah. at the top although, of this thing. <laughs> yeah, although given what we've seen, you know, the the previous spirits. Um, well, even even including the, the the ghost of his former boss, but you know, given what the the ghost of Christmas past and Christmas present looked like, it's I wouldn't necessarily think it was an issue. I would just be like, well, 1988, you know, special effects weren't where they are now. If that you know if that initial image, if that was the actual ghost, I might go with it. Yeah. To be fair, though, they do uh, as, uh, later on when he visits the when he's visited by the actual ghost. I really, really love the uh, the TV screen face thing. Like that's oh the, man, yeah, that should have been throughout the entire thing. That should have been all, the only version you saw of him, really, except for this like fake out one. But yeah. the the fact that he showed no, he does have the skull head like just before that. But it's just like that's an amazing concept, and it actually gets genuinely quite creepy when it's little flickering images of Frank's face melded with skulls and stuff. Yeah. So like, well, I, and I, I love the symbolism there because the ghost of Christmas future shows up from out from this broadcast that Frank's future, if nothing else changes, is going to be defined by this television career that mm -hmm. he set for himself. Yeah. And it is that which is going to kill him. Mm. It's all, all this, the screen imagery and you know, the, the ghost's face later on reflecting that, change of Frank's own face into more and more skull-like, more and more a horrifying visage is a, is a really powerful metaphor. This The ghost embodies his future in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, well, I think something similar to this could be so much more nowadays because then it's, oh, man. you know, it first appears as an image on a television screen. Of course, Frank has got a whole wall of of screens in his office being a television executive, but now there there's, you know, there's televisions, there's computers and monitors, there's phones and tablets, screens are everywhere. I could see him running. And then the, just, just as an image on different screens, the, the spirit or ghost jumping from screen to screen, mm -hmm. chasing Frank through the street. Yeah. Do, uh, do you guys, well, actually it's almost kind of opening up to a broader question. But I do have a, a favorite version of the Ghost of Christmas Future, uh, in that the, there's the uh, the version with George C. George C. Scott. Uh, it's not the most amazing version of a Christmas Carol you're going to see, but uh, the the Ghost of Christmas Future is insanely well done in it. Where it's like he's never quite close to it. It's it's a guy just in a robe, and it's always like Scrooge would be kind of standing by himself, and then you'll see like a light, almost like a kind of very Almost got a David Lynchian, like it's just a light will emit from nowhere, and just this will be this figure standing there, and it will point, 
And there's just this really creepy, it almost sounds like a rusty gate kind of going. And it's it's actually genuinely very unsettling. It's like, oh, that's wow. that's awesome. Like, the, the, yeah, this is the, the best version. Do you guys have like a, a favorite version of the character? And then beyond that, though, it would be like, do you have a favorite version of a Christmas Carol, though, beyond this one, and of course the Muppets, because well, we all know that we all know the Muppets is the best. We, we there's no dispute there. Yes. Uh, I think my favorite version of a Christmas Carol after the Muppet version is the oh, who was the actor who played Scrooge? Um, Alistair was part of the name. I can't Alistair remember. Sims. Alistair Sims. Yeah, the Alistair Sims version. That was the version that we always watched in my house growing up. Uh, it was the Alistair Sims Christmas Carol, It's a Wonderful Life, and then the Charlie Brown Christmas Special. Those were the three movies we always had to make sure to watch every holiday season. And the Alistair Sims version, I remember the colorized version. We have these wild and crazy colors for all the sport <laughs> coats that all these Victorian London uh, figures are wearing. I'm trying to remember in if... Uh, <laughs> My brain is telling me that the Muppet Christmas Carol Sweetums was the Ghost of Christmas Future, but that doesn't seem right. I think the Ghost of Christmas Future, I don't know if it was an actual recognizable Muppet. I think it was just this big hulking, or maybe it was Sweetums, I'm not too sure. I never pieced that together. But it was just this big thing, a big thing, that kind of purple okay. robe, you never saw the face and stuff. You only ever saw sure. the big purple hand. Yeah, so I don't, um, hmm, I hadn't really broken it down to... Favorite spirits, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Muppet Christmas Carol is 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 my favorite um, feature film version of this mm-hmm. tale. Interesting. So that that Alistair Sim version of uh, of a Christmas Carol from 1951 has come up a couple times before. I'll mention it again. It's uh, happens to be my mother's favorite version of the tale, um, and that's the version that uh, that Calvin uh, Grace's son is watching. When uh, when Frank visit with the visits with the ghost yeah, of Christmas yeah. present, and it's a, I I assume that's probably Richard Donner's favorite version as well because that that same version of a Christmas Carol shows up in uh, Lethal Weapon, uh, also <laughs> also a film directed by Richard Donner. So uh, uh, he hadn't seen like the Hallmark version starring like Dean Cain, <laughs> where it was like, oh clearly that's gonna be the best one. Oh clearly, was um, like, oh, 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 Dean Cain's about fifty Christmas movies. Like, oh, he's played Scrooge like five times. <laughs> they just forget that they already cast him in the part. I'm like, no, nah, I'll do it again, guys. <laughs> no no um, problem. But so, it, yeah. So, so speaking of of a Christmas Carol, uh, so just to kind of talk a little bit, <laughs> a little bit about the the movie that we're talking about. So we see in you know sort of uh, last uh, final preparations and rehearsals, we see Mary Lou Retton. <laughs> As Tiny Tim, she throws away her cane and, and goes into uh, her leaping and tumbling routine where she lands, puts her arms out and says, God bless us, everyone. And we see, you know, young. She's so uh, short. <laughs> I just, I, I, yeah, you, well, when yeah. you watch the Olympics, you only ever see gymnasts in context with other gymnasts. gymnasts. And you have you have to can only be so tall in order to effectively uh, tumble and do all the gymnastics. But yeah. to, to see a gymnast in relation yeah. with normal sized yeah. people, it really struck me funny for some reason. Uh, it's another, uh, I guess, another casting choice for perspective. Well, she, I guess, she's supposed to be a, a small child. Right? But, uh, yeah, sure. That's the weird yeah. thing. It, this, this thing though, this is the shot they showed you earlier in the movie when they were advertising that they were going to do. Yeah. This. So it's like. Does she has she been in costume doing this for like a couple of weeks or something <laughs> the or? whole time? Yeah, 
apparently this is the like the the, the highlight because this is one of the things that Frank mentions to Rhinelander when he's doing it earlier when he's talking about how great rehearsals are going and how big yeah. a success this is going to be. And he's like, oh yeah, we've got Mary Lou Retton, this tiny Tim, and, and it's great. <laughs> I do love the guy standing like directly behind her in the most eighties getup. You could possibly imagine, like, just a sweater with rolled up sleeves, but he's just got these, like, insanely white and red sneakers. And right. Like his, and he's got, like, and the popped collar on his, yeah. uh, his golf shirt. Yeah. That's the fact yeah, the sleeves of his jumper are rolled up, and it seems as if his trousers are tucked into his, uh, tucked into his shoes as well. Yeah. Who, yeah. <laughs> this guy just wandered in off three, and, and most of the people in the background are members of the cast, and they're in costume. And, yeah, this guy just came out of a... That's the fact they got freaking John Houseman's there as well. (laughs) You only got him for five minutes, guys. Get get two scenes with him. Make sure he's out there for the Mary Lou Retton double. Get get our money's worth out of him. Oh, but anyway, for Houseman, we're going to use him. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, but I was just going to say, so, um, so, so Tiny Tim or Mary Lou Retton, as Tiny Tim says, "God blesses everyone," and they they flash to Calvin looking on, Mm -hmm. and that was the scene when uh, when they're in the apartment and, and they're watching. Or, or Christmas Carol is on the television, and it's the same scene. They show mm-hmm. Calvin watching Tiny Tim saying, "We've had the uh, setup and the yeah. reminder, but what and could the, the payoff so possibly be? be? Some kind of, is this is this some kind of foreshadowing? Are <laughs> we supposed to be paying attention? <laughs> we don't. Who knows? But, <laughs> who knows? Uh, probably knows. nothing. Yeah. And so we and, the whole time we should have known that this character was supposed to be Fezziwig from the original story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it all makes sense now. <laughs> oh, okay. Now we know. So we, you know, flash around. There's different seasons or different scenes of preparation, and then we see. Speaking of uh, America's favorite old fart, John <laughs> Houseman, um, we see him on a on a television screen, and then we pull out to see. <laughs> well, so this is the home of uh, of Preston Rylander, of uh, Frank's current boss, and. There, how many cats are in this room? This is, and this is the guy who was earlier mentioning to Frank how many cats yeah. and dogs there are, and you know, can we can we program? For I th- that? Yeah, I think Rylander just counted the cats in his house for that statistic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we can get them alone watching, then we'll we'll double our ratings. <laughs> That's the thing, though. Even in the announcements, though, there was a bunch of stuff that was just like I couldn't not like what. Like, that really kind of bugged me a little bit. Um, it's the fact that the guy does this, like, you know, oh, Charles Dickens, a mortal classic, Scrooge. And the way he puts his face is weird, for one thing. But the thing is, is like, it really bugged me, because, like, it's not called Scrooge. Like, it's called A Christmas Carol. This is, like, a TV announcer coming on, like, Steven Spielberg's a mortal classic, Indiana Jones. It's like, <laughs> it's called Raiders of the Lost Ark, for God's sake. Yeah, and it's, I, I have not been able to find anything, and, and listeners, if you want to... Um, educate us, please do, of why they made that decision. I assume at this point the tale is so old, like copyrights have run out and you, you don't have to worry about the, the Charles Dickens estate coming after you. And then maybe that's why you have so many versions. Like <laughs> this is just public domain. You can use the tale and everything. So why not? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, can I can understand like for the, the movie title, yeah, not call it a Christmas Carol, you know, or anything like that. But yeah, for the show within the show, they uh, – yeah, they pretend this, this I, I, I Christmas Carol never existed. think it was some kind of comment on, like, modern-day audiences. It's like, oh, they don't know. They just know the character of Scrooge. They don't know that it's actually called this, so we have to call it Scrooge because that's what rings people's bell. But if you call it a Christmas Carol, they'll be like, what? what what's that? But if you go, like, it's it's Scrooge. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I know Scrooge, of course. But 
it always really bugged me. As even in rewatching the movie, it's like trying to pay attention. Like, is there a scene where someone says to him, "You know, it's not called Scrooge, right?" But no, it didn't. <laughs> unless I missed yeah. it, it doesn't seem to pop up at all. And it really, really bugged me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it is it is a, a strange choice. Mm. I also do. Yeah, uh, I, I think it props as well because I'm sure you probably because you see John Hasman earlier in the movie, but mm-hmm. um, I have to give just props to him because he has. One of my all-time favorite scenes of anything is his uh, intro to The Fog, the John Carpenter movie, The Fog. is like the first three minutes. It's just John Houseman telling a bunch of kids on a beach, like uh, or like a you know beach at night, going about like you know you know five you know, one minutes before midnight, the twenty-first of April. One more story to keep us warm. And he tells essentially the whole setup of the legend of the fog and stuff. And it's just got that subtle John Carpenter piano score behind it. And it's like this. You don't even need to see the rest of the movie. Like This by itself <laughs> is amazing. Yeah. So uh, just seeing him there, it's like, oh, I love that guy. <laughs> I don't really know him from anything else. Except the fact that it's John Houseman. He was in the fog and now he's in this as well. <laughs> and you have the contrast of the classiness of Houseman and Rylander's whole house and then just can of Budweiser to drink as he's watching <laughs> when, the TV show. And I thought that's odd because he is, well, b- both, uh, you know, Preston and and Mrs. Preston are dressed to a tee. They're like, look like they're ready for a, a fancy ball, but they're just sitting at home. And then he's, yeah, he's drinking Budweiser. <laughs> it's not even some, uh, you know, some craft brew or something. He's, he's drinking Bud from the can as he's in his, uh, you know, velvet green Christmas jacket with... Uh, with with bow tie and, and cufflinks and all that. And he is ready for it. He needs that beer. He has had a tough day. Ah, <laughs> right, give me well, the beer. And this, and this this poor um I don't know if it's you know a butler, a manservant, a gentleman's gentleman, whoever this guy is, but he's in 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 white you know white tie doing it right in tails with a white vest mm. and like oh I went to you know four years of butlering college and, and I'm <laughs> handing this guy a can. <laughs> is that supposed to be an indication though that Robert Mitchum. His like this is a self-made man because he came from nothing. Oh, so now he's got loads of, of money. He still drinks Bud, but he's like, no, but I'll do it in a fancy way. I got a butler to serve it to me. He's he's keeping it real. So. <laughs> <laughs> but even like a, oh, possibly, yeah, yeah. But I do I do really like as well. Um, just even before you get into that shot, there's a shot of Frank sort of just waiting, and you get this great bit of. Again, Danny Elfman score. Of course, I freaking can't get rid of this guy in my life, Danny Elfman. <laughs> but um, actually, I have to say as well, considering this is before, this is pre-Batman, there's a lot of Batman-esque cues in his score to this movie as well. Like, oh, it was oh that's like, so funny because when I listened to this, I I kept thinking of Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, well, they, yeah. it must have been as a burst of that like six or seven <laughs> years where he's like, yeah, <laughs> creepy yeah. Christmas. I can't get it out of my yeah. brain. <laughs> when I was thinking. Um, Beetlejuice in terms of the score, which I think I think is also '88, but earlier in the year. Um, I'm not sure which one was filmed first or scored first. But like Danny Elfman says, "This is like, oh, damn it, I'm a hack. Oh God damn it. <laughs> But no, we love you, Danny. We love you. But. Oh no, yeah, it's 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 great. I love the score. But um, the, the, I, I wanted to talk. Oh no, just a, oh sorry. Uh, the, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. I was just going to say because I just love the shot of Frank, and then you get the the reflection of the moon in the window, mm-hmm. and it goes like a blood red. And it's just got this ominous feeling. But it actually, weirdly enough, because taking a minute to appreciate the soundtrack, uh, coincidentally enough, there's a friend of mine uh, just yesterday has started giving away his vinyl collection. There's a friend of mine, Issa Shields, a lovely, lovely fella. But he's got like the most 
bizarre, eclectic collection of weird old soundtracks on vinyl and cassette. Like, if you want the soundtrack to Hobgoblins, he'll have it on cassette. <laughs> and one of the things he put up with I him, can't imagine why anyone would, but if you did. Yeah. Oh, he's generally, he'd be able to, like, oh, I've got an original pressing of the soundtrack to Halloween 3. Like, that's the kind of guy he is. Wow. And uh, he actually put up, he's got the original soundtrack to Scrooged. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm going on to talk about that tomorrow. And on the front cover of that, it has behind Bill Murray... This red moon. It's like, oh, are they trying to push that at some point in the market? Is he, is that something he's looking, you know, looking for a home? Yeah, yeah I think he's trying to get, he's, I did actually say to him, I'm going on to talk about this. And he said, like, this is a great movie. It's a terrible soundtrack. But the thing is, he's not talking about the Danny Elfman score. What he has is the soundtrack that's like the oh, the, the music inspired by thing. Oh, and just oh. even even seeing in the picture he has, like featuring such artists as Annie Lennox and Al Green, pretty cool. Natalie Cole, right? Oh, Nat, you know, Nat King's I guess daughter or granddaughter. Sure, yeah, yeah. But that's in the, like Buster Poindexter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course, like, uh, cool Modi. <laughs> Oh, well, now you like <laughs> the, the the new voices of freedom. <laughs> it's like all right, well, this, is, this is taking a turn here as it gets lower down the list. But uh, and there's just some people I've never heard of: Dan Hartman and Denise Lopez. Don't have yeah, no don't, idea. Don't know them. But, but there's uh, Miles it, Miles Davis and Paul Schaefer. Like, yes, they work together at some point. <laughs> well, yeah. So the on our uh, first day or second day, we see that the band as as you know Frank and his brother are walking. Down the streets of Manhattan, and they pass, uh, you know, some some street musicians playing, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Frank is cursing the crowd. And he's like, "Oh, you just learned, you know," and he's cursing the band or the the musician, saying, um, "You know, you're trying to, you know, rip off the tourists. You just learned that song yesterday." And it's it's you know it's, it's Paul Schaefer and David Sanborn and Miles Davis. Oh man, <laughs> you know actually playing uh, you know in the movie. So how uh, do you like that? Yeah, yeah. Some so, some famous folks there. Mm. Um, interesting. Yeah. So, so the thought- blood red moon in this scene sent me down a rabbit hole. Oh yes, because uh, I I I'm fascinated by the. <laughs> By the choice of imagery here. So a blood red moon like that only happens as a result of a total lunar eclipse where the moon perfectly enters the shadow of the earth. Uh, So you've got the earth in between the sun and the moon. And in the last hundred years, a total eclipse like that has only happened twice in December. Mm. Once in 1917, and it was December 28th? Ah, so close. (laughs) And then again in 2010, and that was on the 21st. Ah, too early. (laughs) The thing is, though, this movie totally could have been set in 2010. Nothing about it looks dated. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing about it indicates that this is the hairstyles, the fashion, it's all timeless. (laughs) Oh, I don't know if we, do we still, is Tab still around? Do we still have Tab? This is the thing I want. There's plenty left in that can, that's for sure. (laughs) But there's, the thing is, there's plenty of things that have now come over to the UK and Ireland in terms of like, oh, we eventually got Oreos after so many years. And now they they ship over Lucky Charms, but it's like three three quid for a box. Like, I'm not going to buy that. (laughs) The thing is, Tab has never made it, but I constantly hear in US media about Tab. So what what the hell is tap? Like what is this drink? So so tap I think was the first or one of the first uh, sugar free soft drinks. I mean nowadays we have like Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi and just think whatever whatever regular soft drink whatever carbonated beverage 
they just put diet in front of it and there's a you know there's a version of it but before in a time before all that and uh, i believe it had saccharin and i mm-hmm. guess it was like the first carbonated soft drink with saccharin as the sweetener instead of sugar um, and yeah this is one of one of my favorite little scenes from this movie is uh is making what they refer to in in the script as a stab and it's a Stoli vodka with tab, but it's oh my god. He's like he might as well pull out an eyedropper. The way he's just dribbling, <laughs> it's barely coloring the liquid, the, blowing the across the top of the can practically just to get the, the, a whiff of tab yeah. in that vodka. He's just waving the can over over basically just a tumbler full of straight vodka. I think another thing worth of seeing is uh, I went to see a couple of years back. There was a screening of The Room. In uh, a Liverpool <laughs> cinema, and it had like Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero were in attendance. But as a special, the, wow. the the place put out like we're serving the cocktail served in the movie, which was basically whiskey mixed with vodka. And I was like, that was all they were. Up. <laughs> I think it's like me and me. It was me. John oh. went to it. And we're like, well, we gotta get it. And it was the whole, most disgusting thing that we paid about six quid each for. But it was basically just oh like a tumbler goodness. full of whiskey with vodka chucked in on top. I was just like, well, I'm, I'm guessing we're gonna get wasted off this at least. So. <laughs> uh, if nothing else, we'll uh, we'll we'll be stumbling home after this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just and I, I didn't want to get away from the, the Rhinelanders too quickly. Speaking of rabbit holes, so this is. Um, this little bit when she's like, "Oh, isn't that Frank Cross on the uh, on the screen? Is he supposed to be part of the movie?" That's I think this is the only bit where we see Mrs. Rhinelander, mm-hmm. um, who actually doesn't have a first name. She's credited as uh, Mrs. Rhinelander, but uh, the actress is Maria Riva, and uh, she's done a, a, a bunch of stuff, very long career. But her first, or at least her first credit in IMDb, is the Scarlet Empress from 1934. And, uh, as 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 you remember, that's um, uh, the Scarlet Empress was uh, Catherine II, aka Catherine the Great of Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. Catherine was in that film was played by Marlena Dietrich, oh. and uh, our actress here, Maria Riva, plays the young Catherine. Or actually, at that point, she was uh, Sophia. She plays the the young. She plays Sophia as a child, uh, the girl who would later grow up to be Catherine the Great. Huh. But it, but I thought that was interesting because also in that film is Sam Jaffe. Uh, now, Sam Jaffe was in The Great Bank Robbery in 1969 with Mako, who was in Specific Heights, 1990, with Michael Keaton. Oh, I knew that's um, where you, you were. Now, I knew you were going to look at that. It's all connected. But but wait, there's more. Oh, Sam, good. Sam, I'm just getting started. Sam Jaffe <laughs> was also in On the Line in 1984 with Michael Bowen, who was in Jackie Brown oh. with Michael Keaton. Hey. Sam Jaffe <laughs> was also in The Barbarian and the Geisha. In 1958, with So Yamamura, who was in Gung Ho with Michael Keaton. <laughs> it's all indications that Michael Keaton should have played Frank Ross. Michael <laughs> Keaton, <laughs> this would have been a much, uh, well, I don't want to say better, but yes, it would have been a better movie. The thing um, is, though, it could have been like, then this woman would have to be, oh, I know Sam Jaffe, uh, Michael, do yeah. you know him? <laughs> like, no. Oh, he's starred in a bunch of movies with a guy, with people who have also been in movies with you. It's like, Basically, yeah. Like, nah, no, nah. but uh, <laughs> Sam Jaffe may be, uh, may be best known for, uh, he was a regular in the Ben Casey 
TV series where he played a character, Dr. David Zorba. Uh, Sam Jaffe also had an uncredited part as a character playing Zoltan Zorba in the 1966 Batman series. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah, it's it's all connected. I have to say, and too. Yes, we, uh, we, need, we need a Michael Keaton Christmas Carol movie. <laughs> Scrooge. I have to say, too, actually, in consideration, because, you know, we have this – I'm one for um, alt casting. I've always got a thing like, oh, if they made this in this era, who would have played that? And I remember there's at one point someone had a fan poster out, and like, uh, like what if Batman was made in the 70s, but it was directed by like Mario Bava, and it would have been like Chris Walken as Batman <laughs> and David Bowie as the Joker and stuff. But I have to say, if they had made a Batman movie in like the 50s, Robert Mitchum would have been like, oh, yeah, he could totally be Batman. Like, but old, Oh, yeah. Old school, hmm. young Robert Mitchum would have been an mm-hmm. amazing Batman, but... It's just one of the things. Like, I don't know if he would ever have taken the part because he just seems like the type of guy. Who, like, you want me to dress up as what? Like, <laughs> back in that that era, it might have been you. You need to pitch it to a TV actor. Like Adam West is like, yeah, you, you have to wear like a body stocking, and the whole thing's just kind of a joke, basically. <laughs> and he's like, all right, okay. But Robert Mitchum doesn't strike me as the type who would have been. <laughs> one thing I, I also like years ago, uh, I read about Robert Mitchum. I, I should have looked this up actually to see if there was any kind of closure for it. Was that um, he escaped from a chain gang at one point in his life? Like he was, no. he was locked up, and he Whoa. was on a chain gang, and then he escaped. And it's like the fact that I know that is like, did they ever catch him again? <laughs> like, <laughs> or was he just a big shot going? I escaped from a, a chain gang, and then outside like, the premiere of Night of the Hunter, <laughs> freaking the police just ascend on. I was like, all right, back in the back in the gang, <laughs> Mitchum. Yeah, I would think if they were still after him, he wouldn't be too hard to find. <laughs> just even seeing in the back the background of Scrooge, these police officers, just like, there he is. <laughs> just like, just not- like the end of the Blues Brothers, every time Robert Mitchum has a movie premiere, the police just show up in the back yeah. of the theater and he has to make a daring escape. <laughs> You just see him that. He just like yeah. He like sneak, sneak, sneaks out the back door. Or something. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even open that Budweiser. He just like shakes shakes up the can and throws it at them. And then right. just, like, jumps out a window or something. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway. <laughs> well, as as uh, as Bill Murray is having his stab, uh, I loved the connection between the voiceover from Houseman with. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge alone in his gloomy chambers and there is Cross alone in his modern gloomy chambers these stark glass top tables and clean white lines but lit only by the screens of these this wall of TV monitors it makes for a nice resonance yeah yeah I do have to say too because we have this little bit of um, Frank starts to unwrap this present from his brother as well Yes. And that's, uh, I have to say, I do prefer the brother in this to the nephew in pretty much every version of the Christmas Carol. He was, <laughs> so I hate Scrooge's nephew so much because he yes. he's just an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly the Muppets version, too. Insufferably like, cheery in so many versions. Yeah, but just the fact, too, that he is, he's always taking the, he's just taking the piss out of Scrooge the whole time behind his back. He's like, he's in, has in jokes with his friends about them. It's like, well, no wonder the guy hates you because he's right to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's awful. Yeah, and but and he's so bad that in, in you know in the original tale, I guess Dickens probably didn't like the nephew too much either. He doesn't name him. The whole first section, it's strictly he's just Scrooge's nephew, and it isn't until the the scenes with Christmas, the the ghost of Christmas present, where. 
uh, you know, where, where Scrooge sees the scenes of his nephew with his friends and his, um, I guess, fiance or his wife to be at that point where they refer to him by name. Mm. But like the whole opening section where where the nephew visits visits the office to invite Scrooge over for Christmas dinner, that whole time he's only referred to as nephew. <laughs> um, ne- neither sure. Dickens nor the character Scrooge uses his proper name. So uh, I don't think anyone likes this guy. <laughs> Unless he's but I do like James in this version. Yeah, so so James played by uh, Bill Murray's actual brother. Yeah, now, I, I'm glad you brought up the gift because I had a question. So it's it's very nice, you know. It's it's the perfect Christmas gift because it is it is personal, it is emotional. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily has to be extravagant mm-hmm. or expensive. It's it's a framed picture of of the two brothers, Frank and James, and he signs it to Frank, the best brother I ever had. He has other brothers. Like in this movie, even appearing in the movie, there is another brother. There's a third, you know, a, a third Murray brother playing an actual friend, you know, cross brother. But this, you know, this is the, the best. It's kind of a, or does he just, you know, did he give every brother a picture? That's the thing you And he signed them the all the same way. the best brother I ever had. Yeah. You're not and he hopes, the, well, they don't actually talk to each other. That they'll, you know, <laughs> they're they're you're not seeing at the, at the end of the movie, there's a deleted scene of like, oh, God, Frank actually wants to come around for Christmas dinner now. Mm-hmm. They're going yeah. to they're gonna figure out I just got them the same present. Yeah. It yeah. cost me you five talk- bucks for three frames. And that's all I needed. <laughs> Well, it seems like just younger brother idolization of the older brother to me. Uh, that the the two of them seem to only have each other. It's not exactly a warm mm-hmm. and loving house that they grew up in. Right. And so for James, Frank was all he had in terms of companionship. Yeah. I do have yeah, to wonder yeah. as well. Like, I, I guess it's probably you could surmise that this because they're actual brothers in real life. That this is a picture of the two of them. From their childhood as well. Like this might actually be Bill Murray and, and his little brother in, in this picture as well. But unless they just I like that idea. I think that's just a picture of the kid actor that we saw oh, sorry. watching Howdy Doody time. Oh there you go. No, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's obviously what it is now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it it'd be better if both the picture and the scene filmed with the Ghost of Christmas Pass was the very young Bill Murray. <laughs> if somehow they had thought, you know, yeah. this guy, he's he's going to play, he's going to be in a Scrooge-like, he's going to play a Scrooge-like character in a retelling of A Christmas Carol in, you know, in, in 35 years. So uh, You need like a Richard Linklater to do this or something. Where it's like, we filmed this one scene of this kid. When 50 Scrooge years' head. time, he's going to be playing Scrooge in my version. Yeah. And if not me, I'm raising my own kid and training him how to make this movie that I want to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, li- I like this bit. So, you know, yeah, Frank has opened the present. He's he's mulling over the picture of his brother and nursing his, uh, his yeah, Stolian tab. And we see a hand, the skeletal hand, reach out from the screens and it's about to grab him and... Who knows what adventures he'll, you know, this, this spirit, this ghost will take Frank on. Mm. And then suddenly they're interrupted. <laughs> but first. <laughs> but first, uh, honey, I'm home. <laughs> and this is. Now, yeah, so- I, I thought this is the movie playing with expectations. I thought that when Elliot shows up again, that he was, in fact, the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> because he comes in wielding a weapon of death mm-hmm. and threatening uh and threatening Cross's life. 
Yeah. Uh, so for a split second, and also because of the ghosts up to this point were these wild caricatures, both Ghosts of Christmas Past and Ghosts of Christmas Future. So uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite being a living caricature of a human being would have made for an excellent ghost as well. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Thought- Instead, he's just <laughs> acts crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so you get a little bit of um, if you don't, yeah, if you don't start treating people better. Yeah. Someone's going to burst into your office with a shotgun and try to kill you. <laughs> um, like like me right now. I have to say, though, too, because anytime I ever see Bobcat, and we've actually spoken about him a bit on Batman this season, because I actually notice a lot of Bobcat Goldthwait in Danny DeVito's version of The Penguin. There's like he's, he's channeling <laughs> a slight vibe of Goldthwait in him. But like every time, I always try to do the voice, and I can't. I can never achieve that. It's a thing. And it, to be fair to him, it's a singular voice that they try to get. Oh that. man! Because yeah. even like when he's yeah, just, yeah. you know, you know, uh, my wife left me and she took a little baby daughter with her. And it's like I just, it's yeah. not quite right. It's like how is he doing it? <laughs> well, and it, he uses it to great effect because when we saw him earlier as uh, you know, sort of television, a junior executive. Elliot Loudermilk talked like a regular person. Yeah. But as as his life deteriorates and he gets crazier and, and more manic, yeah. he, he becomes less Bob and more Bobcat. And then uh, this final scene kind of pulls out the full, the oh, full performance. If this was like a like a, a normal movies by minute thing where it was minute by minute like Bob, more more Bob than Bobcat would have been an episode title. <laughs> it, it still may be. Uh, yeah. More more Bob than Bobcat. Or more Bobcat than Bob at this point. Uh, yeah, he's he's gone full nuts. And this is you know, there's there's many departures and, and I think most of them work um in terms of this being uh, a little bit better telling than the original tale. And uh, I like this that we see we see a version of Bob Cratchit or a version of the the downtrodden assistant that doesn't it isn't that is not constantly turning the other cheek or taking it with with a smile that it's a little <laughs> bit more realistic obviously we we all hope to you know to greet adversity with cheerfulness but it doesn't always happen so we get <laughs> I have to say though cuz he's taking this all out in frank and fair enough but the fact too that is like he gets fired just before christmas and then in the same day his wife leaves him and takes their baby daughter. It's like, who were you married to? Like, she does not sound pleasant at all. Like, why is there something we're not seeing about Elliot behind closed doors? Or like, was he? Why would she leave him just because he got fired in the day before Christmas? It's right. There, there must be some backstory there that I don't know if there's a deleted scene, if there's a, you know another storyline, you no know, B plot that got cut out because. He instantly, obviously, he's sad. He, he's not happy at losing his job right before Christmas. But he's like, we see him sitting on the curb as when security drops him off with a box of his personal effects, and he's he's kind of rehearsing the speech to his wife, saying, "Well, mm-hmm. you know, we can we'll move to a studio apartment." It's like, okay, well, I know this is a tough time of year to be looking for a job. You're probably not going to get a lot of interviews, you know, in that week before Christmas and New Year's, but. You know, but he's already kind of in a mindset like we're we're gonna have to move to a smaller apartment. Everything like you can't you just all right? You take a week off, you work on your resume, and then January second, look for another job. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he he's kind of anticipating uh, 
Yeah, the, the level of All trouble. is not well yeah. in the louder milk household. Mm, this yeah. is the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's just been mounting domestic complaints, I would guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've lost my job, and uh, my wife did not leave me right away. Well, then you're one of the yeah. lucky ones. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess I picked a winner. I know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so there there must have been some underlying tension mm. already there. Unless she's just got she's a like an IBC groupie. She's like I want to be married to a, a you know someone who works for the IBC network. And if you're going to get fired, then uh, <laughs> but even though you think you give it more than a day, <laughs> like oh, we'll, we'll see how this pans out. But I, I have to well, say, well, yeah, because. He, I think he was, and, and he says he was fired the day before Christmas, but that's not, you know, that does, it, the timeline doesn't work out because this is the day before Christmas. Mm. And I, I think he was fired yesterday or, or no, he must have, he must have been fired the 22nd. Oh. So it's like three days before Christmas because then there's a scene um, because they're talking about the promos. Right. You know, for a, a, a for Scrooge, I almost said a Christmas Carol, huh? but uh, they're, they're you know they're they're viewing the promos and Frank shows his version where he's trying to scare people into watching, and <laughs> and and and, and Mister Louderman Elliot talks up and says, you know, what, what does that have to do with the, the spirit of Christmas? And and that's what gets him fired. But then we cut to what I I believe is the next day. It's it's the headline on the paper where. Uh, an old woman has dropped dead, you know, was kind of scared to death, has a heart attack watching that promo. And we see on that, on the paper, that the the date is the 23rd. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that was last night. And then this, they, they said that the live, um, this is a live production that's being shown on Christmas Eve. So this is now the 24th. Yeah. Um, I guess it, maybe he's just, he's been on a bender. He's been drinking yeah. and everything that he's lost track of time. But mm. no, you've, you've, you've had two whole days to pull your stuff together. There, <laughs> I have to say, though, uh, also, as uh, people don't know, I'm uh, in my actual profession, I'm a proofreader and copywriter. And <laughs> this actually really bugs me the way, because he, one of the things I always see that I have to rectify in essays is people repeating the same terms in quick succession because it just <laughs> makes your writing look very bland and repetitive and stuff. So the fact that he says, like, I'm fine the day before Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's like <laughs> if I was looking at that script, I'd be like, Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. Yeah, Christmas, I would have been Christmas, like, Christmas. scratch out that uh, Merry Christmas, put in like Happy Holidays or something. It's like, why is he saying <laughs> Christmas twice in a row? Like it doesn't, it's just like, yeah. it could have been a million things, but he could have put them in there just going peekaboo or anything. It's like they made yeah. the choice. Well, I, I, I think I think you work up to it. I would I would say, keep the Merry Christmas. Say, fired on December 24th. Merry Christmas. Yeah, there you go. And then you kind of build up to it, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. So that, that would have, like, I almost had my, my red pen out there. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Always on the job there. Uh, McGowan, just <laughs> that was my, my offer to uh, when Liz Whitaker got her um, misspelled oh. tattoo. Was it like, oh, I'm a professional proofreader. I can get a tattoo pen, like a needle, and like the little red line through it and put oh, the correct gosh. version for you if you want. Yeah, yeah. So that's what happens when uh, you, you don't come. And yeah, Father, Father David was there in Denver. You don't come to the Movies by Minutes gathering and uh, – yeah, mistakes get made. <laughs> I guess we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I did what I could, but I just can't keep oh, track of everyone make... all the time, you know? Yeah. Maybe the next the, the next meetup, though, like I'll come and come back with a tattoo that says, Charles Dickens Scrooge. And then he's like, oh my God, I hate this so much. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to chop off his arm now. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, so 
Elliot Loudermilk does manage to get off a few shots. And, and there's a nice little bit of um, they do show him reloading, which yeah. is nice because so often in movies, just uh, they show someone they go, they fire oh, 10 that, that, shots that, or 20 shots. That's around. the thing. Like, yeah. there's so many. So, again, you know, I'm living in a country where, well, I grew up in a country. Well, there were actually, to be fair, there were guns because it was in the middle of a, a kind of war zone where I grew up in. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. um, not as much in America in terms of the fact that you people have you know legalized guns and whatnot. <laughs> so for there's a lot of times I just don't really understand how shotguns work because I was like, well, it has two barrels. There's two bullets go in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in movies you'll see people like, no, that's that's all you need. You could fire off a million shots with a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> And particularly, too, I got very confused in Terminator 2 with like, because that looked like a shotgun that Arnie had, but he's just like doing that one arm reload thing. But he, he doesn't seem to ever need to. I think he does reload it at one point, but it's like, how many bullets are in that thing? It looks like it's a one shot kind of gun. But then I guess some people were like, well, that's a Remington whatever, and you can get like the six bullets in the, the, the handle or something or around that area or whatnot. But I mean, that's a whole other this conversation, summer. to be fair. <laughs> This summer, Bobcat Goldthwait is the Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> he he would have been good. Because the, the, <laughs> no. the thing is, like, the Terminator is supposed to be infiltration unit. And it's like, well, you see Arnie coming a mile away. You would never suspect Bobcat Goldthwait is going to be the guy. <laughs> yeah. So that there are different versions of shotguns and there are ones that you can load up. Although I don't know. Um, I don't know if there's any models that, that hold too many Bullets, but as are, are cartridges, uh, shotguns a little bit different than a, a handgun, or, you know, pistol mm. or a revolver. But well, if you have, if you have a pump uh, yeah. action shotgun, you can load I think six to eight shells into it. When you've got a double barreled breech loading shotgun like this, yeah, it can only hold two cartridges at a time. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the barrel load. That just adds like it's a little bit of extra tension. Watching like Evil Dead Two, when it's like Bruce Campbell, but he's got the shotgun. So like, you only got two shots in that though, <laughs> and it's like it's a lot of crazy stuff getting thrown at you, dude. Yeah. You're gonna have to reload just, that every five seconds. <laughs> yeah, I just assume they they cut. You know, the, there's scenes of him continually reloading. They just cut for time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is this is the horror movie part of the Christmas Carol story. So this act of watching Elliot reloading ramps up the tension. I have to to say, though, like, um, and say that this is the horror movie part. Before rewatching, I forgot how, like, how genuinely disturbing there are some scenes in this that are, like, actually very, very creepy. Like, the scene of the Frank seeing the guy on fire in the restaurants in complete silence and watching that, I was like, that's really, that's actually, like, that is something from a horror movie. And then when I'm finding um, the guy, the, the, the the smiling frozen corpse is, like, this is very, very something yeah. as well. It's like this is actually, it's, if they played up the horror more, this could have been a full blown horror movie because like the the elements are there. But it's like oh, they're, just, they're mixing everything together, I guess. But yeah, this this version of a Christmas Carol feels like more of a ghost story than a Christmas story. Yeah, yeah. I'll also say too because uh, if she if she ever listens to this, she may never forgive me for not bringing it up. But I have a friend Julie, and she. Mm-hmm. is absolutely in love with Bobcat Goldthwait. Like, she is... <laughs> he is her celebrity crush. Like, Police Academy 4-era Bobcat. That's her guy. <laughs> she constantly puts up pictures of him and stuff, too, of, like, little hearts next to it and stuff. But I don't know what it is, but she she fancies this guy. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean... Well, everyone, everyone's got to love somebody, I guess. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is with Bobcat, yeah. though, is that, like, he's not been around much lately because he... I don't know if it's because his act was this voice that it kind of disappeared for a bit. 
the last thing I heard him doing was that movie. I feel bad that like you've been here, Father David. He made that movie about the woman sexually stimulating her dog. That was a big kind of underground hit. With like, it was called Sleeping Dogs Lie. And that was the last I ever heard of Bobcat Goldthwait. Wait, like, what? He, he, <laughs> he, made, he, made, he directed a movie called Sleeping Dogs Lie. It was about a woman who, out of boredom, I can't remember, she performed some kind of act of bestiality on the dog. And then it, word gets out and becomes a scandal. Well, yes, it would be a scandal. A family picture. <laughs> and it's a, I think, oh, maybe he did that God Bless America one after that, too. He did a movie that was a bit similar to Super, the the Rain Wilson superhero movie. But it was more just about a guy becoming like a vigilante. And he had like a teenage female side, sidekick and stuff. That was actually a pretty good movie as well. But yeah, he moved in that era of directing these kind of warped, dark comedies. Actually, I think he did that world's greatest dad thing with robin williams as well the which was a thing where i think robin williams son and it's oh it's, it's even darker now looking back it is bobcat who directed that i think it's his son yeah yeah he did direct that yeah and his son yeah. accidentally kills himself through autoerotic asphyxiation and then robin williams makes it look like he just committed suicide to save the legacy of his son and stuff which is even darker now, considering what happened to Robin Williams as well. So, but, oh my. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Lord of mercy. But yeah, that, that, that's, that is Bobcat's legacy to me. And I was like, yeah, he, he made some really weird, warped movies, like, about 10 years ago. And then he just seems <laughs> to have disappeared. Oh, that's really interesting, Niall. Man. I mean, he's, he's, he still directs, and he's been more directing these days than mm. yeah, the only acting. The only things I know Bobcat Goldthwait from are uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. <laughs> where he's shown up as a panel member every now and then. I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got some respectability. It's it's NPR. They're, well, uh, you know. oh, from NPR. Yes, yeah, that's N- where the NPR is respectable. Not, yes, not I would the, agree uh, with that. <laughs> not the auto erotic asphyxiation of your dog. That's not respectable. Uh, well, but the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the the NPR bit. That's, that's, fair. <laughs> those two different movies, Sean. It wasn't auto asphyxiation <laughs> of a dog. It was. A, <laughs> <laughs> they're the same in my head. He's not a monster. He's Come not on. A monster. Um, yeah, you know, but that would be even sadder. Yeah, if the dog died. Oh, oh yeah, that, that would have been like you need to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, uh, that's back in the uh, day. Actually, the most recent <laughs> thing I have heard, I just remember because we mentioned it in Batman as well, where there was I think it was during the whole James Gunn debacle, where you know Disney fired him for making jokes way like way back when, and I think Bobcat came out and he was like, "Yeah, well, you use Disney, you use my voice," because he did that one of those sidekick characters in Hercules. It's like, oh, right. you use oh, my yeah. voice in one of your rides in Disneyland. Look at my back catalog. Consider all the jokes I've made. <laughs> so like, if you want to be get a clean slate, you better get rid of me as well and stuff. I don't know if they ever did follow up to that. We're like, all right, Bobcat, we'll, we'll, we'll take your voice off the ride or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, I never heard a response from uh, from Disney on that. Uh, I guess they, 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 Which actually, they do have them. They, he has them against the wall there. So it's like, well, Disney, if you want to go through your it, all, all your cast, they probably made some pretty messed up jokes <laughs> in their past. So, yeah, it's, right. it's, a, it's a messed up situation. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think Disney is necessarily worried about intellectual consistency. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as long as they, you know, that... That mouse money keeps rolling in. Yeah. They're also probably not worried about the the threats of Bobcat Goldthwait as well. It's like, well, we, you are very easily replaced, Bobcat. I don't know. Have you yes. seen him with a shotgun? He can be pretty threatening. Oh, it'd be great if they were <laughs> hanging on till like December twenty third to fire him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
That yeah, that would be like one of the greatest trolls in history. If, yeah, the announcement comes out. Yeah, December. Yeah, or yeah, just before Christmas, December twenty third or the fourth. Like Disney announces. <laughs> oh, they're they're yeah, they're cutting Bobcat's voice out of all their rides and and everything. And, yeah. <laughs> so it's like who who's in charge of Disney at the minute? Is it Bob Iger or <laughs> was him in his office getting the door kicked in? <laughs> I think one of the things I always wonder too about like in in a, in a world where um, in a world where you have. Sorry. Scrooge, like uh, the Christmas Carol tale, existing as a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, has there ever been a, like a movie or a TV show that's played about with what if some person who also re- like someone just really really likes Christmas and then they bump into someone and then they explain like this thing happened to me <laughs> this the one Christmas Eve these three ghosts came and told me all this stuff and then they like, you like, know yeah, what it's a Christmas Carol like you just read a book <laughs> but they're just like no that no, happened that- to me too. <laughs> Does actually have like well, a, it's, an online community of like, I got visited by these three ghosts one Christmas. I used to be an asshole, and now I'm a bit nicer. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. So, like, Frank, like, he knows this story. He's producing a version of it on his, you know, a, a live television production. And, and you know, we, we've talked about it, that the parallels in this scene, how the – we see the you know the 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 television program Scrooge is going through that final section of the the Ghost of Christmas Future the same time Frank is being visited by the Ghost of Christmas Future and that's that's happened before where they were they were rehearsing the scenes for uh, the Ghost of Christmas Present in the first part of the movie where Frank is visited by that particular ghost but at no point does he actually kind of just like yeah yeah I got it like I I know this story like he never makes the connection. Between I think he doesn't know the story. <laughs> I, I don't think he knows the story at all. I mean, his promo doesn't mention the story at all. It's just, you know, threatening with all kinds of violent imagery. Oh, right. And when he uh, gets the, the gun out, when he's visited by the ghost of his old boss, the gun is on top of the Scrooge script. <laughs> right. And <laughs> it, it would seem to me that the script would have to have been there for a while for the gun to be right on top of it. Mm. Okay. And so I, I don't think Cross gives a single fig about the story of A Christmas Carol. He is just concerned about burnishing his own record and legacy as president of IBC. Yeah. Because okay. he, I'm sure Bill Murray would have made those kinds of jokes if, it, if there was any indication of Cross being that, that self-aware. Mm. The thing is, though, there is that. But then at the in this clump of minutes, when he sees the ghost of Christmas future... He knows what it is instantly. He's like, "Oh, you! Like, oh, come on, come on! Just take me!" Well, he's had two. He's had two ghosts already, and here is this unearthly figure showing yeah. up in the elevator. Well, <laughs> although at first he thinks it's he thinks it's the same guy in costume that he ran into earlier. So he see he oh yeah the, same yeah the second ghostly yeah. figure in the elevator. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so hey man, that might work time. with the chicks, but not with me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is my fa- this is my favorite joke in the movie. Is <laughs> Frank looking him up and down, looking at his robes, hearing the growling, and saying, "May I?" <laughs> Opening up, <laughs> closing it up again. Total deadpan. Oh, it's so good. Well, that, and then so the, well I like, delivered. I like the line. Did, did our people do that? You know we're going to get phone calls. Because <laughs> they already have. They yeah, have this lady yeah. die from his promo. That's what they, that, that little bit, though, made me wonder, because this is 88, right? So yes, I'll have to look up 80. here quickly. Because that re- really reminded me in Nightmare on Elm Street 4, 
you see that Freddy Krueger, like he he has the souls of his victims in his chest and stuff. You mm-hmm. see this oh, a right. similar kind of thing. And so Elm Street Four was that was eighty eight as well. Oh man, oh there's some someone was ripping somebody mm. off. There must have been studio notes been passed around. Like oh something's in the air. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it could just be coincidence. You know, it could be like the. Um, was it like Dante's Peak and Volcano, Armageddon, <laughs> Deep Impact thing where it's just – That is still – Something was in the air that year. That is still a feigned pro, uh, <laughs> podcast project I, I may still do. I think we mentioned it in Batman at one point of looking at a minute of Volcano and looking at a minute of Dante's Peak at the same time and just going through the two movies at the same – and that's the show, which is like, yeah, it's Dante's <laughs> Volcano or Volcano Peak or whatever you want to call it. Do it absolutely. Uh, a, the thing is, that the, there was a similar thing though with um, the, going very, very, very off on a tangent here. But at, you know, the Michael Mann film, The Keep, it has uh, a great movie with Ian McKellen. It's like a, a bunch of soldiers and like a an abandoned Sir Ian McKellen. Sir Ian McKellen. Sir Ian McKellen. Oh. Uh, and he, they're like a, an abandoned <laughs> like Nazi uh, like bunker somewhere, and they accidentally unleash a golem. And um, there's music at the end of it. It's this very, very synth-heavy. You know, it was Michael Mann, so of course it's synth-heavy. And uh, it sounds identical to the song We're Walking in the Air, which I believe actually brought up in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation Days. Uh, where, but the thing is, the music to that sounds exactly like that song, and the movies came out in the same year. Like, that, that's a song from a movie called The Snowman. It's big in England. And it's like... It's so similar. It's like, that's so weird that those two things came out and they're virtually identical. Was there was there a note? Was there a leak in the studio somewhere? What, what's going on? But, oh, well, that's just me. That's still my own little, like, oh, someday I'm going to investigate. I'm going to do the keep minutes and I'm going to get to the bottom of that. All right. <laughs> um, so let's get into, uh, let's go on this this crazy ride with Frank and, and the latest ghosts. And their mm. first stop is... Uh, I guess like the the pediatric ward of a mental hospital where young young Calvin, I guess a little bit older, but Calvin is in like a, a padded room. Uh, so we know Calvin witnessed the killing of his father uh, some time ago, five years according to the ghost of Christmas present. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how good her sense of time is being a, an immortal spirit and all, but uh, or only existing for one day at that. Hmm. Uh, but do they? You know, do they lock you up just for not talking? That, that seems excessive to me. Then, like, so he's he's mute. Oh, there must have been something else that happened. You know, I, I read a dark undertone <laughs> into this that Calvin did something to warrant him being locked up in a padded room, and he's calm around his mother, but otherwise, not. There's a. <laughs> As a Calvin, a Calvin is Michael Myers eyes. in this this version. <laughs> well. Why Ooh. else would there be such strict security? I yeah. mean, visiting hours being over as soon as she gets there. Yeah. They do not want people being in the same room with this boy for any stretch of time. Mm. Well, it's, it's also found it quite strange. Maybe it was another security uh, measure, but uh, Alfred Woodard, um, she's not wearing not any wearing shoes, shoes. In, yeah. in the room. Is that a thing? Like you have to take off your shoes before you get in there in case – Dangerous patients could try to could haul them off and use them as a you, weapon yeah, or something. Or? They, they take your belt and your shoes, and like if you have a tie on, they'll take that too. I don't, yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, I, so I, I, I kind of do want to see some kind of version where no, he does he does become like Michael Myers instead of Halloween. It's like Christmas, <laughs> and it's just this this kid going around. Just yep, yeah, you know, maybe he comes back to New York on every Christmas day or something. Instead of like he's he's got like a Leonard Nimoy mask on or or something like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I'm not quite sure what to make of this scene. And also, after after Grace leaves, Calvin looks up. Does he see Frank? He seems to be looking right at where Frank is, is kind of looking in through the window. Ah. Um, but I don't, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think we're supposed to interpret this literally. Just because of the number of questions that 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 arise from the situation doesn't make mm-hmm. a it would have been a little bit of a nice twist. So I was drawn more in by the the symbolism of Grace's wardrobe. So first, you got a woman named Grace. She's dressed all in blue, mm-hmm. and she has her this veil or scarf over her head. Very evocative of the Virgin Mary to me, and it, it strikes me as being a Pieta-like moment where you have a mother comforting her suffering son, uh, and on top of that, that she's barefoot, emphasizing poverty. There is uh, uh, this odd religious moment that Frank is witnessing here. Mm. Hmm. So you're, you're trying to compare, so you're saying that this character is very similar to Peggy Bundy from Married with Children. That's what you're, that's what you're positing, Father. <laughs> yes, Niall, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I knew it. I always suspected it. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually w- would have been intrigued because um, I never really noticed, Sean, what you were saying about uh, him looking at Frank. It would have been interesting had they alluded more to because we find out that Frank's dead. You know, one of the obviously one of the futures of, of Christmas. Could they have done that? Maybe he killed him. Like that. That's why he's in the the rubber room, and that's. Oh, he's not the he, he's not the only one in the sequence that looks at Frank. Oh. Claire turns and looks at Frank too. Oh, oh, it's, it's, oh, it's a conspiracy. They both got him. <laughs> Claire did it, and he took the fall. They're all in it. Was it like a crisscross situation? Yeah. <laughs> Strangers. On so strange. then, then you know, Claire kills the man who killed. You know. Grace's husband slash Calvin's father, and then in payback, Calvin kills Frank. <laughs> it's the, the perfect crime. <laughs> There's an entire other movie that Richard Jonner was planning to make that was supposed to be was supposed to do like a machete cut of, of Scrooge. Yeah. Where, they had to stop it here, go watch that movie, and then come back for this. Yeah, we were going an entirely different direction. But uh, so, so those comments um, kind of bring up a, a question that I have. And I'd like to get your take, uh, well, both of you, but particularly Father David, uh-huh. um, on the religious aspects of this tale. And obviously, there is a, <laughs> there, you know, there's a, a, a very strong religious component to the Christmas holiday. But one of the things I particularly like about A Christmas Carol is it's not particularly religious. It, there's not, and, and um, there, there's, I think almost there's there's no mention of of Christ or Jesus or God in the original, and I think in at least God bless us yeah. everyone. Th- there's that bit, and then in you know in most or a lot of the the film adapt- adaptations, there's um, you know maybe religious Christmas music in the background, but the 
Um, I think the lesson holds up. I think the tale, if you remove all religiousness uh, and just look at it as a tale of how you should behave in society and how you interact with the people around you, um, regardless of uh, what may or may not happen in the afterlife, I think the tale holds up. And then in particularly in, in this telling, so... Um, you know, so Frank sees a possible future for for young Calvin, and he can affect that as, uh, you know, as Calvin's mother's boss, he can give her job security and he can support her and give her time off if she needs to take him to the doctors and that sort of thing. Um, and then in the scene with with Claire, kind of seeing the way she has changed her outlook and she changed her behavior and, and her attitude towards people in need. And I think mm-hmm. that strikes very close to Frank because um, he could kind of comfort himself that you know there's some there's some balance in the universe that if as bad as I am there's someone who's even better to kind of balance the scales overall and then he sees well no I've taken this good person and I've I've turned her bad or I've I've turned her cold um, you know the, the sort of the religious aspect and, and the thought of the afterlife doesn't come in till the third. Of, of these scenes of, of possible future um, where Frank is, is confronted directly with his own mortality. Basically, like, I, I don't think, I think the story holds up and the, the message holds up without the religious aspect. You know, what do you, what do you think about that? I would fundamentally agree that there's no overt religious symbolism in this movie. It's not like, say, It's a Wonderful Life, where you have God talking with St. Joseph and sending the angel Clarence down uh, to take care of this you know, poor lost human soul. So it, it doesn't have that. I would say that Dickens is writing out of a uh, sort of a context of a domesticated Christianity, a Victorian Christianity, where the, the virtues of selflessness and goodwill towards men have been uh, incorporated into a sense of gentlemanliness and polite interactions in society. However, the the underlying message of A Christmas Carol is fundamentally a Christian one. Your life is not about you. And if you seek just the things of this world, if you seek after material wealth and power and prestige, you ultimately end up crabby, alone, hemmed in with no real joy or warmth or happiness in your life. And it takes a change in imagination, a different way of seeing yourself in order to understand how the choices that you make and that inward turn to focus just on yourself still has consequences on the lives of others. So even when you think you're living for yourself, you're still affecting other people. Mm-hmm. So why not make the fundamental choice to live your life for others so as to increase uh, their happiness and paradoxically, by giving yourself away, you also increase your own happiness, that you don't miss Christmas, that the Scrooge wakes changed on that day. You know, and I think there's also some subtle Christian imagery underneath. You have three spirits who visit Scrooge in the night, and after that third visit, he is reborn. He has come to a newness of life, evoking the three days Christ was in the tomb, and then rises to newness of life from the death to open up a new way of living. So the the Carol baseline story has that I would argue a fundamentally Christian message that our happiness increases by living for others rather than living for oneself. 
And then this movie, this 1988 Bill Murray vehicle, actually ramps up the religious imagery. So first they they give the main character the surname of Cross, and they call (laughs) attention to itself in the set dressing by having that great big cross, a thing they nail people to in the background of his office as a reminder of (laughs) the connection between his last name and Jesus. And then in the scene in the crematorium, his casket, we learn Cross's full name, Francis Xavier Cross, a most Catholic name if I have ever heard one. You know, St. Francis Xavier being one of the great Jesuit missionaries who went to the Philippines, to Japan, to India uh, in the 16th century to baptize, to spread the gospel, and to live his life for others. So here is this, this man whose name evokes the main symbol of Christianity, who is named after a saint who spent his life for others, the the message of the movie, he becomes who he was born to be. He was meant to be this man who lives for others in imitation of the one who died on the cross, in imitation of St. Francis Xavier, who went to the ends of the earth in order to uh, give something to others. So there is, yeah, that that universal message of A Christmas Carol works in lots of different times and places. And yes, it doesn't have explicit religious symbolism, but I think the Christian thing haunts this story. And I don't think that was a mistake on Dickens' part. I, I think he had that Christian context in the back of his mind as he was writing the original story. <laughs> That's the thing, because I never actually considered it that way before. And now I just get getting this image of, like, originally Dickens had it done as, like, an Easter carol. And he's like, nah, it's too on the nose. <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> there you go. That's a bit more subtle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and one of the things I uh, – another one of the deviations from the original that I, that I like the way this movie does it is uh, – a, a, the, the original Christmas carol is quite materialistic. In particular, at the end – Scrooge's reaction. So he, he wakes up after this this wild night. All three ghosts visit um, over the course of a single evening. Well, actually, all four if we include Marley. So that's all over the, the single evening Christmas Eve. He wakes up Christmas Day and you know he, he tosses the coin down to the boy in the street and go fetch me the, the biggest goose uh, hanging in the window the of the goose, butcher shop the and, and all that sort. Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it becomes, you know, I think, you know, he does have the spirit of Christmas, but he he expresses it through materialistic ways of uh, you know, and, and a lot of times the way it's portrayed in the movies is giving of gifts and bringing of a, a meal and a goose and everything. Whereas in this film, and, and we'll get to it more in, in the next episode, but we we there's there's no rash of gift giving at the end, other than he gives. Uh, Elliot his job back or he or hires him back at it sounds like it's a you know actually a promotion he, he hires him back at a better job but uh you know he kind of just expresses hey I've got you know I've got the spirit I've got the idea I'm going to embrace Christmas and he doesn't immediately you know he doesn't go run out and get the I guess like the the biggest uh, you know the biggest container of lo mein from <laughs> the, the Chinese restaurant to refer back to uh you know, I guess like, probably their first date with Claire when they go out for Chinese food. But you know, he it, it doesn't end in an expression of gift giving or just you know materialistic expression. It is purely Bill Murray riffing on 
the the joys of friends and family and everything. So I think this, you know, this um, the, there are issues with this movie, um, you know, co- comparing it to the, the Charles Dickens classic. But I think there's a few things it does get right, and I would say that is one of them. I have to say uh, as well, though, because we're kind of in the segment now with Claire. <laughs> it's like it, it, I wonder what else happened because she has done such a, an about face character turn from one thing that Frank said to her. I don't know if you can entirely blame him for this because it's like, well, if she's that fickle, <laughs> that this could morph her into this monstrous human being <laughs> that she's now become just because he was like, ah, you know, who cares? You know, that he, he had that attitude about it. I don't know if there's more, like, unless this is all entirely supposed to be, it's not a literal future. It is more just like the spirit of the future or like, that's, that's just kind of what she's going to become rather than like, she is literally now this woman. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is, uh, you know, we, we kind of, we talked about it for the first scene. The, the second scene with Claire is even, um, yeah, there's, there's even more steps. There's more untold story that we haven't seen to get Claire to this place. And it's even more unrealistic. I mean, I guess you could say sort of the, the padded room that Calvin was in. Well, it was not just the walls, but the floor was padded as well. So maybe, maybe Grace was wearing high heels and they thought the, the heel would, would pierce the padding on the floors. And that's why she's not wearing shoes where this is, uh, you know, this is something out of Brazil. This, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is, yes, not... that's exactly what I was thinking. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I almost said that I'm like, am I the only one? Is anyone else going to get this? But, uh, good. I'm not the only one. Like this is, th- this is a very stylized scene that, yeah. uh, I, I don't, yeah, it's just, I don't, yeah, it's hard to imagine how does, even Claire, if she decides to go, you know, get a job in the, the private sector and she gives up charity and her good good works and everything, um, still to get this exaggerated in in behavior and appearance, uh, it, it's hard to figure out uh, or, or hard to accept that this is, uh, you know, this is a literal future, including the, the young children kind of standing at the window of the restaurant with yeah. their hands out. Like, they're not just at the window looking, but... but these, these are all possible futures. These are all visions for Frank's sake. The, the ghost of Christmas Future's job is to show Frank the consequences of his way of life. Mm-hmm. If you continue to act this way, these are the kinds of things you can expect to happen. These are the kinds of impacts you're going to have on the people around you and it speaks to the in the inherent goodness that frank has buried over the years and his desire to climb to the top of the tv world that he does care for claire he does want her to be happy and he can see that if he (laughs) doesn't change the way he treats her he's going to have an overall negative impact on her Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's highly stylized, I agree, but it's it's meant to be an extreme wake-up call. And in, in Dickens' original story, we get really surreal stories as well, where you do have the, the pawn shop scene where all the scavengers are talking about how they were able to take down the curtains, rings and all, from Scrooge's bed. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's just that that's, you know, a, <laughs> you know yeah. a total, and with him lying there and everything, they say... <laughs> You know, it's yeah. a totally unrealistic, but again, it's it's meant to be an extreme dreamlike image to shake Frank and Scrooge awake. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think this is the most powerful of the visions, and I think this yeah. is what changes him. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's I kind of I'm skeptical of the ending 
in the original. I think, I just, I don't buy it. I kind of think when confronted with his own mortality, I see Scrooge as the kind of person that would be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to take down those bed curtains and I'm going to hide them so that when I die, they can't sell them. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sell off everything I have of value. I'm going to turn it all into gold. I'm going to bury it out in the backyard so they there'll be nothing for them to pick over. I kind of, I, I just particularly the, the the Scrooge that we see in the beginning, like that's the reaction I expect rather than the the one we actually get. And I think even in this, um, and I think I think the point of of that scene going to the, the third of these visions of, of possible futures where where Frank is at his own his own funeral, his own cremation, is not to not to kind of scare him of death, because I'm sure on an intellectual level, he knows, as we all do, that we are mortal and our, our time will come. And what? I think... Oh, so No one told me this. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Wait a minute. Oh, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't read that book to the that end, have you? huge area outside well, you know, your I, church I, fathers. <laughs> after, the first two, after the first two chapters, I kind of got the gist of it. So, oh, wow, gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I think the point of that scene is not to say, oh, Frank, you're going to die someday. I think the, the point is actually the opposite. To remind him, because he even he even says, "What does he say?" I've got it, I've got it down here. He says, um, "What's the point why, of showing me this? Yeah. I can't do anything when I'm dead." Right? Why are you showing me this stuff? I can't do anything dead. And I think that so the point is not that he is going to die, but but it's the answer to that question. Yes, you you can't do anything when you're dead, but you are not dead yet. Yeah. So do it now. And, or you, alternatively, he is already dead. He is he is living a kind of death right now because he's pushing all these other people away. He shut himself up in this sterile high rise office. Ah, so so it's like he, an, an emotional death. Yeah, your physical death will soon follow if you do mm-hmm. not change. He's he the uh, the yeah. the flames are already licking at his feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think yeah. So I think the scene with Claire strikes him again because I think. I think that comfort him, even though we know it's been 15 years uh, since they last spoke before they reconnect earlier in the movie. But I think um, that's maybe a, a crutch that he's used to know, oh, there's someone out there who's good outweighs mm. my my greed and avarice. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so maybe the, the ledger is balanced overall. But then he's like, oh, no, I've this effect I have. It's not just... It's not just myself, and it's not even just my family because, eh, you know, who likes them? But you know that this person I actually do like is being affected, and and that's yeah. you know that's the that's the final thing that like how do we know this is going to take? You know, oh, okay, he's going to be good tonight, and he's going to be good tomorrow on Christmas Day, and and you know maybe I'll have Christmas dinner with his brothers and everything, but you know will will it last after that? Is he gonna? You know, is he going to be there for, you know, when it's when it's Groundhog Day in a little over a month, is he going to still be the good Frank? And I think this is this is the, you know, the icing on the cake, as it will. This is the scene that cements it, that um, that someone as good and giving and pure as Claire could be corrupted. Mm. Yeah. Um, That he he does not want to see that. And, you know, again, and not for his own sake, but for her sake for the effect that he has on her and then circling around for his own sake of being in a world 
where Claire is no longer the good Claire, and that's not mm. the world he wants to live in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I uh, like it. Yeah. Yeah. So we see. We see. Um, how do I say? Oh, so that so the final scene. Of course, at, at first Frank thinks this might be his brother because we see Wendy, uh, his his brother's uh, wife. I was, I was happy to but see then, her too. Like, like yeah. people know know me, no major Frasier fan. I was like, that's Ronnie. It's Ronnie from Frasier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it's yeah. So Wendy Malick playing <laughs> Wendy Cross here. <laughs> they couldn't even uh, change her name. But uh, so then James steps in. He's like, oh, who's? And then it's a little uh, yep. a little seven action here. You know, who's in the box? I will also say, Sean, technically, because I did IMDb this, and uh, in real life, Wendy Malick spells it I E Wendy, and in the movie, it's Wendy with a Y. So technically, oh, they did that? change it. So. Wow. It's a completely different Wendy. Right. Getting so deep into character. <laughs> um, yeah. So and then uh, yeah, and then it's not just it's not just Frank seeing his name on the coffin as it rolls yeah. into the flames, but then at the very end, he is inside himself. That, that, that's always the thing that kind of um, almost. Again, what I'm talking about earlier in that, like, the Christmas Carol tale always seems to be, like, was the guy just sort of terrorized into being nice and basically just scared into being good. And there's so many versions of it that they always up this part. Like, you know, it's not enough that he sees himself dead and he's seen the consequences. We have to throw him in the coffin with the flames literally around his legs so he's extra terrified. And there's, Mm -hmm. I think, the version with Patrick Stewart has him looking into his grave, and then he's literally pushed into hell. Like, it goes in this big CGI friggin' toss down the whole thing. And it's kind of like, well, that's what I'm talking about. All you've done is terrify a man into changing himself. And I don't know if that will keep, because it's like the slow burn psychological stuff of like him looking like these visions of Claire and stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, so, I, yeah, I should, I should change my ways. But now this is just throwing in a little extra thing to just get him going, ah! Like, instead of... That, that kind of terror will will only last so long. So it, mm-hmm. it always feels a bit of a cheat at the end. I know why they have to put it in for the dramatic purposes in the presentation of the story to end in this big boom. But uh, it always seems like that's the thing that kind of puts me off a bit of like, well, you are basically just sort of, you know, using a load of smoke and mirrors now on this guy to sort of terrify him rather than let the actual lesson settle in. But... Uh, maybe it's just it's probably just me. I'm sure that you know. I don't know if this Christmas Carol story is going to be successful. Basically, I think, I, I think maybe <laughs> does it have teeth? I don't know. Uh, this Charles Dickens guy is not going to amount to much. Kind of a hack writer, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I agree with with your critique of the pedagogy of the ghosts. It does rely a lot on, on shock and terror. Uh, for me, this coffin scene goes on just a little too long. Now, maybe it's just because I, I struggle with claustrophobia, so I don't like the idea of being in a tight, confined space like a coffin. <laughs> but the, the I found the the fire metaphor uh, well obvious fire metaphor is obvious here and <laughs> yes. I I found it unnecessary to put the flames to his uh, very nice cowboy boots which oh, that was the thing. Yeah, that, that too when he falls into the elevator because he's, he's got this yeah. thing suspender he's wearing suspenders suspenders and cowboy and boots, boots. <laughs> with his suit it's like oh what a jerk plus all all of Frank's fashion to me is I was always weirded out every time I watched it when Claire says to him like I've never seen your hair so short it's like this is short hair for this guy and then you see his old hair it's like what the hell is that thing <laughs> 
the only thing actually the cremation thing now is forever uh so slightly changed for me because i don't know if you two guys are big fans of uh, doctor who but they they posited a thing a few seasons back during computer peter capaldi's era where yeah. he went into a version of the afterlife where thinking you because know, the doctor who never goes into religious things it's always like yeah well you think it might be hell but it's actually a thing it's a, a construct but uh, they have a thing where they introduce the idea that uh, the the spirit leaves the body, but anything that happens to the body can also affect the spirit. So anyone who is cremated goes through unbearable agony in the afterlife because your body's literally been burned and stuff. Ooh, so every helps. time I see cremation now, I'm like, yeah, I know that's just sci-fi, but that would be pretty bad <laughs> if that actually happened to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, <laughs> no, I have no, I have I have to make one professional critique here with this priest figure um, yes. who comes in. He is not wearing the right collar <laughs> to be a priest. I uh, was wondering about that. He he is wearing what's called a brother's collar, which is where you have the black band with just a little lip of white all the mm-hmm. way around the neck. So the brother's collar is worn by members of religious orders to differentiate them from priests. That they are consecrated, they exist in, as uh, members of religious orders, but they have not yet been ordained to the priesthood. Now, even if you had, say, an Anglican vicar or Episcopalian minister or what have you, there you would have the band collar, which is solid white all the way around. Or you'd have what's called the Roman collar, which is where you have the white notch in the front with maybe some white around the edge of the neck. So I'm going to take take those points off uh, for accuracy. <laughs> I should have should have contacted me or have uh, some consulting on this. <laughs> um, can we, can but, we get in touch with three-year-old future Father David Murray? <laughs> one, One-year-old at this point. I, I had just been born when this movie came out. Uh, now, that said, I do enjoy the fact that the priest is played by the screenwriter, uh, Michael O'Donohue. Oh. Yeah, I was going to say, so this is, you know, this, the, the guy, I don't know if, if screenwriters are necessarily involved in costuming, if, if that's his department, but yeah, so, so this is, uh, this is one of the writers of the screenplay here, Michael O'Donoghue, oh. as uh, this priest. And he gets, he gets to have the scary, shiny glasses moment with the fire reflected in his spectacles. Oh, yes. It's very, uh, very effective. Mm. <laughs> um, and so then that, that brings us to uh, the end of the action. For this With a single of the film, yeah. ding, right at the end. <laughs> what kind of bell could be ringing? Uh, yeah, no idea. Is this uh, this possibly? Uh, is this for- the end for our hero? <laughs> well, from what I've learned from uh, other Christmas movies, is uh, perhaps this is Frank Cross getting his wings. Um, whenever a bell rings, isn't that what happens? <laughs> he's in a better place. He's taking the elevator to the big penthouse in the sky. Yeah. He's uh, express elevator to the top floor. Happy ending for Frank Cross. <laughs> See, it all it all worked out. Uh, um, but so any any uh, any any final thoughts on uh, you know on Scrooge on uh, on priest collars or uh, or the true meaning of Christmas? Uh, do- well, not on priest collars, but I I, I did want to share just uh, you know I mentioned at the top of the show that I I really like Bill Murray on mm-hmm. a personal level, but I also I also feel a certain kinship with Bill Murray uh, because he is both a Chicagoan as yes. I am, and he is also a Catholic as I am. Uh, he grew up in a, a Irish Catholic family and uh, has expressed several times an appreciation for the uh, Latin 
mass, that is the the mass performed in the Latin language, and has talked about the real power of sacred music and the importance of having that in worship. And this was all part of an interview he was doing when St. Vincent was coming out in an interview with The Guardian back in 2014. And in fact, in addition to his actor brothers, you know, John, who's playing James in this movie, he also has a sister who's a sister. Sister Nancy Murray is a Dominican sister, and uh, she gets to combine both these things. She performs a one-woman show about the life of St. Catherine of Siena. So she goes around to various churches and and youth ministry functions and uh, performs this one-woman show, and uh, I'm sure she's sick of always people asking her about her brother, Bill Murray, but <laughs> in the interviews and pictures I've seen, she seems like a good sport about it. Uh so uh, Bill Murray himself has a, a really great religious sense. And I think there's a there's a sort of redeemed Scrooge-like character that he incorporates into his life. You have all these stories where you're at a restaurant downtown and all of a sudden someone comes up to the table, grabs the chicken wing off your plate, takes a big <laughs> bite out of it. And you look up and there's Bill Murray chewing on your chicken wing and he looks at you and says no one will ever believe you and he walks away <laughs> i don't believe it <laughs> like he, uh, bill murray yeah. himself has this great joie de vivre he wants to incorporate the sense of almost wonder this this glee and giddiness that comes out at the end of a christmas carol in the scrooge character and in the cross character as well mm. i just i just like bill murray he just he seems like a really interesting guy <laughs> uh i think the only like my parting notes would be, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention in a movie featuring a love interest called Claire Phillips that I myself once dated a girl called Claire Phillips. And every Christmas, I always remind her, like, hey, Scrooge is coming up. It's on TV. And she's every time she's like, so, so what? Like, she just does not care at all. <laughs> she didn't embrace it. Embrace it. Yeah. She, was probably, she probably hated this movie. But fair, like, you know, the last I saw of her, it was like, oh, I, I, I told her to scrape all the, 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 the young and needy off her shoe and stuff. And I think she's some kind of rich woman now who's, like, way off. She's yeah. always sending, like, starving people away and stuff. She seems like she's doing really well for herself, actually. Like, I'm, I'm happy things worked out for her. But. Oh. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, the only other thing as well I would say is that uh, because you also get a little bit of Bobcat Goldthwait singing uh, sound. Santa Claus is coming to town as he's hunting, oh, right, right. hunting Frank throughout. If you ever want to hear the best version of that song, uh, just YouTube uh, Joseph Spence, uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, and you'll hear – it's a thing my dad always used to play when I was a kid, where it's some, some old blues musician playing an insanely out-of-tune guitar – and he doesn't know the words to it. So he's just going, I've played it to like my sister-in-law and she's just been horrified at it. And I'm absolutely like in tears laughing at that. But do yourselves a favor and just listen, track down that version of the song. It sounds horrible. I will, I will, I will, I have to, uh, yeah, I will, I will track that down presently. That sounds wonderful. Um, all right. So, uh, t- to wrap up, uh, so, so Niall, I want to make sure I, I get this in. I think I, I missed this, uh, one of our previous podcasting adventures together. But so, if folks want to hear more from, from Niall McGowan, where can they do that? Oh, well, you can get me, uh, on my own show, me and, uh, my co host, John Parker. Uh, we're doing Bat Minutes, where we're going through the Batman movies from 1989 through 
1997. I'm going to have to stop there because other people are doing the Chris Nolan movies. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've, uh, we've finished Batman 89 and we're currently in the middle of Batman Returns, which of course in itself is a Christmas movie. And uh, yes. I know both you fellas, uh, Sean, you haven't appeared on it yet, but you will you will have at some point. And you have appeared in the first season. And Father David, you have been on the show. So if you want to hear of you know, me and both of these guys together again, not at the same time, but... <laughs> That's in some form. You can do that by going to the show. So just Google Bat Minute, and you'll get us on, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all your podcatchers and whatnot. So yeah, you can just get me there any old time. Yeah, but that's Bat Minute. Yeah, it's 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 a great show, and those are great movies with. Uh, well, so, so far with Michael Keaton. Yes, <laughs> there, there may be other <laughs> Batman. We are we, we are due for <laughs> a Batman massive coming. change. <laughs> that's like coming up. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy! Yeah, so buckle uh, in. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be a a bump right. So, uh, yeah, so uh, so so Father David will appear on that program, and uh, so anything else to plug, uh, Father David? If folks want to hear. Uh, hear you opine on the uh, the philosophical nature of various films. So. Uh, well, if you want to hear me opine on the philosophical nature of various films, uh, I would recommend tuning in to uh, the DC Expanded Universe Minute, uh, where I was on for the Batman v Superman <laughs> season. The rivals! Oh, come on, don't plug them, Father David, come on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Nihilus is my time, I let you talk no, no, about no, your no, show, and I let you talk about my appearances. I've been on there, uh, those so guys, we, those guys have been on, like, we're, we're all friends, we're all friends. <laughs> uh, so I was on for minutes 106 through uh, 110, and we got into some nice theological and philosophical implications of Superman and Batman and what they represent. So we had some really great uh, Christ and the Cape conversations. So if, mm. you wanna, if you want to check out more of that, please feel free. Uh, on the internets in general, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Father Mowry. That's uh, capital F-R, capital M-O-W-R-Y. And I'm also uh, a member of a number of uh, Facebook groups for all of the various Movies by Minutes podcasts. So uh if you are lurking about there, it's more than likely I'm uh, hanging out there as well. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, speaking of Facebook, you can uh, join the conversation about about this and, and many other great Christmas and, and holiday movies at uh, our group, which is the Jelly of the Month Club on Facebook. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at NLC Vacation Days um, because we because uh, we set that up last year when we were covering National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and we have not changed it. <laughs> and the website for for the program is at, at Groundhog Minute. We're kind of a a, a sibling or a, a child of the uh, the Groundhog Minute podcast. And so, as we wrap up, just uh, apologies once again to Pete Mummert. We did not have time uh, to play your holiday message, but I'm sure we will get to it next episode. Uh, so please, listeners, come back for the next spirit of Scrooged by the Ghost. Mm-hmm.